Hello there, and welcome back to Horror-Like Behavior. This will be the first full-length episode. It took me long enough, yeah? But I'm here now, so let's get into it. Now, I think it goes without saying, but I'm gonna say it anyways. There's going to be many a spoiler in these episodes. So please don't come for me. This has been your warning. I don't think you guys know how hard it was to choose what movie to do first. There really hasn't ever been a horror movie that I haven't really liked. I like them all. Even the the more cheesy ones, the low budget ones, the high budget ones, all of the in-between. I just love horror in general. I narrowed down my choices by actually going to my bookshelf and seeing what creepy books I had that had been turned into movies. And lo and behold, I had actually quite a few. So the first movie we are going to discuss is... Misery. Have you heard of it? If you haven't, then join the many other people who surprisingly haven't heard of it either. When I've talked to a couple people about which movie I was doing for the first episode, I was kind of shocked at how many people had no idea what I was talking about. Do you know anything about life? Just kidding. But now um, I can educate you on this movie. It's been quite the journey trying to scale back all of my notes and information that I've learned through my research. I wish I could tell you every single detail, but we would be here a week. And I know you don't have that kind of time. I don't have that kind of time either. And my ass is already numb from recording, so I'm so sorry. Now, if you didn't already know, Misery is an adaptation of a Stephen King novel of the same name. Like I said, I found this book on my shelf. And have I read it? No. I have a tiny bit of a problem with buying books and starting them and then going on to the next. And then it's just a never-ending cycle. And I'm trying to get better about it, but here we are. The movie came out in 1990, which, holy fuck, that is 30 years ago. Wow, that um makes me feel old but uh we don't we don't need to talk about that we do need to talk about kathy bates if you don't know who kathy bates is get with the program because she's amazing she really is she's one of my favorite actresses of all time and this movie has a lot to do with that she plays the character of annie wilkes who is absolutely fucking terrifying number one fan. Alongside Kathy Bates stars James Caan, who also does a fantastic job. And funny enough, they were both not the first choices for these roles. For the role of Annie Wilkes, there was Jessica Lange, Barbara Streisand, Deborah Winger, Angelica Houston, Mary Tyler Moore, and Bette Midler, who were sought out to play the role of Annie Wilkes. And they all turned it down. Bette Midler's reasoning for turning down the role was because it was too violent, she said, but later she admitted that she was stupid for making that decision. The list of desirables for the role of Paul Sheldon is even longer. Robert Redford, Al Pacino, Jack Nicholson, Kevin Kline, William Hurt, Dustin Hoffman, Gene Hackman, Mel Gibson, Gross, Harrison Ford, Michael Douglas, Robert De Niro, Warren Beatty. Holy shit. And all of these people are great actors in their own rights. But, or is it in their own right? In their own right. But I cannot even begin to imagine this movie if it did not star James Caan and Kathy Bates. 
they just both did so so great in these roles that you wouldn't want to see anybody else and if you don't want to take my word for it at least in the case of Kathy Bates she won an Oscar for best leading actress for Misery what a gal especially considering she was in the same category as Julia Roberts, Joanne Woodward, Angelica Houston, and fucking Meryl Streep. It's pretty unfortunate that James Caan didn't really receive any type of big recognition for the role, um, awards-wise, because the dude spent 15 weeks of shooting in bed. And if that doesn't make sense because you haven't seen the movie yet, just wait and I'll explain. Before we get more into the movie and what goes on in the movie, I just wanted to mention that the director of Misery is Mr. Rob Reiner, who I happen to be quite a huge fan of due to him directing what's been my favorite movie since I was nine years old, Stand By Me. Stand By Me was actually another Stephen King adaptation from one of his short stories called The Body. Stephen King was so pleased with how Stand By Me turned out that he would only sign off on Misery being turned into a movie if Rob Reiner was the one who directed it. That's an insane compliment, and I'm sure Rob Reiner appreciated it so much, but I'm sure he also felt quite a bit of pressure to make a great product because he had Stephen King's blessing, but he did an amazing job. So the plot centers around Paul Sheldon, who recently decided to make the bold move to kill off his character Misery Chastain, who acts as the protagonist in his best-selling romance novels. The decision to kill off Misery Chastain was really the driving catalyst to what makes this a horror movie. But let me set the story up just a little bit better. The movie begins with Paul clearly celebrating the fact that he has just finished a new novel. He opens up a bottle of champagne, he lights a cigarette, he is a happy camper. He leaves what appears to be a cabin in the dead of winter and throws a snowball at a tree and hits it dead on. Just by the look on his face, you can tell that he just feels victorious, like a winner. He gets in his car and he is excitedly going somewhere and jamming to a song on the radio that I also happen to love too. is a little bit too excited it seems because sir I know you're excited but you are speed racing on a winding road where there is not any type of safety railing at least that I can see of to keep you from plummeting to your death and I honestly don't know how sorry I feel for you choices baby I crawl when it's icy out let alone on a fucking mountain so what what do you think happens he absolutely fucking flips his car he he goes unconscious even if he hadn't have been knocked out cold he is trapped his car is deep in snow and the snow is not stopping anytime soon it looks like he's in the middle of nowhere so really he's kind of shit out of luck or is he i guess it depends on how you look at it because yes he does get rescued but his rescuer is not what they seem also i want to make a little side comment because this part in the movie um he's freed from the car and we know that it's annie 
or we're going to know that it's Annie Wilkes who has saved him. But how the fuck is she carrying a grown-ass man the way she is? And it seems effortless, like maybe a little bit of a shrug, but like I, I'm pretty strong and I don't think I could do that. And I don't know, please, if you agree with me or if you also saw that part in the movie and were like, what? Please message me. We can talk. Also, wait, I thought I was done, but I'm not done. It's hard to walk in fucking snow. I don't care what kind of sturdy ass boots you have. If you're carrying a grown ass man and walking in snow while it's still like super snowing down on you, are you on steroids? Are you on the roids, bruh? I need to know. Okay, I'm done with that. Moving on. So, Annie rescues him. What a sweet old pumpkin pie. Wrong. He's actually a psychotic fucking bitch. She is the motherfucking wolf in sheep's clothing. So Paul Sheldon comes to in a bed that he's never seen before to a voice of a woman he's never seen or heard before and obviously he's very disoriented. He doesn't know what has happened, where he is, nothing. He probably is feeling like he's in the goddamn twilight zone just like any other normal person would. And here is Annie Wilkes acting so chipper and so nonchalant, explaining to Paul that the phone lines are down, the roads are not clear, but that she happens to have found him, and so she brought him back to her farm where she would take care of him until the phone lines were up and running again and the roads were clear so that she could call an ambulance. Now to Annie, Paul is not just some random person that she found and has saved to take care of and nurse them back to health. He is kind of a god in her eyes. He is the author of her favorite book series. She goes on to tell him that she is his number one fan. She not only knows every single one of his books backwards and forwards, but she also knows a lot about Paul's personal life. One thing that she was oblivious to, however, was that in Paul's last novel that had not quite come out yet, he had killed off Misery Chastain. But boy, does she find out, and it is not pretty. But that's a little bit later on in the movie. So after Annie introduces herself to Paul, he is still pretty apprehensive and you can tell by the look on his face and James Caan just does amazing with how he's looking, how he gives those subtle what the fuck looks, I guess, that she kind of just is oblivious to. But you can also tell that Paul is trying to be grateful as well because he does know that he would have died if she wasn't there or hadn't been there to save him from that car wreck. Especially considering that Paul broke both of his damn legs. And according to Annie, they look a lot better than they had when she found him, but holy boulder legs. I will try and attach a, a still from the movie in the Instagram page or on the Instagram page, but man, they they don't look cute. And I did um, read that to get that look, they used a type of like gelatin mold. And I mean, it looks pretty realistic and pretty damn gross. Just imagine waking up in a stranger's home. That in and of itself is just like a really jolting experience. But when they then whip a blanket back off of your legs and you see that, that your legs are just fucked to bits that's a bad day and he was having such a good day so it really makes you feel bad for him he just had the rug really ripped out from 
beneath him. And I mean, we've all had bad days where, you know, everything's going swell and then shit takes a turn for the worse. But I think this is like that on another level. Even with the promise of being taken care of, Paul does not know Annie. He knows nothing about her. She tells him where he is, but he doesn't know for sure if she's lying or not. He can't really get out of the bed to see out the window, and it's a shitty position to be in because you can't really do much. You are at the mercy of this person who, yes, has saved you, but you, you know, almost immediately feel like something is off. Something is off kilter. And sure enough, Miss Wilkes's demeanor goes from very sweet to sour, you know, at the drop of a hat. And it's seen for the first time in a scene where Annie has just read the manuscript to Paul's newest untitled novel, in which he lets her read only because she saved his life. Annie gets a little bit into the manuscript and then stops because she needs to feed Paul. They get on the topic of Annie's opinion of what she has read so far. And at first she's reserved in her answer because who is she to really speak on it? Because she has loved all of Paul Sheldon's work thus far. This is a little bit different. She doesn't like the profanity used. And Paul just calmly tries to explain that this is how the kids talked. It's kind of like a, an autobiography of sorts, and so he's drawing the source material from his actual lived experiences. These are slum kids. I was a slum kid. Everybody talks like that. They do not! What do you think I say when I go to the feed store in town? Oh, now, Wally, give me a bag of that effing pig feed and ten pounds that bitchly cow corn. And in the bank, do I tell Mrs. Bollinger, oh, Here's one big bastard of a check. Give me some of your Christing money. There, look there. See what you made me do. This is her first outburst in the movie. And you know right away that this woman is just unhinged. And the stunned look on Paul's face really tells you right away as well that he now just has confirmation of what he had already been feeling to a small degree when he woke from his car wreck. So at that point, what do you do? You can't go anywhere. Your legs are bouldery and broken and you can't move and you don't know where you are and you barely know this woman. All that you know is she's feeding you and shaving you and giving you pain pills that she calls novel. You are trapped. What do you do? You don't even have both the options of fight or flight. Really all you have is to fight. But then with your legs being taken away from you essentially, where does that leave you? I feel like at first Paul was just going to kind of ride it out and see what happens because yes, she had an outburst, but nothing too crazy, even though it was kind of crazy, if you know what I mean. But then comes the crazy crazy. And also I should say that this whole time, his literary agent is actually looking for him. She's been in contact with the town's sheriff, Buster, who serves as comedic relief in the movie along with his deputy, who happens to be his wife. There's one scene where they're driving together. The car trying to look for Paul Sheldon's car maybe sticking out of the snow somewhere. And she, she puts her hand on his thigh. And he says something to the effect of, When you're in this car, you're my deputy and not my wife. She comes back with, Well, this deputy wishes she were at home under the covers with her sheriff. Or something close to that. This is the same scene where they actually um, pull over to the side of the road. And Buster falls pretty deep in some snow. And he is so close to discovering Paul's wrecked car, but 
he he falls a little short. If he would have just gone a little bit farther in, he would have found it. Meanwhile, back at Annie's, Sir Lumpy Legs is just suffering, and it only gets worse. While on a quick trip to town, Annie sees that Paul's newest novel has come out in store. So of course she has to snag it up. She brings it back home, and she immediately starts reading it. But again, she doesn't know that this is the book where Paul Sheldon kills off the main character, Misery Chastain. This is where shit hits the fan. So, you know, she's uh, she's a little upset. She nearly hits Paul over the head with the planter, but she stops herself. I thought you were good, Paul. But you're not good. You're just another lying old dirty birdie. And I don't think I'd better be around you for a while. In the movie, he does try to escape Annie's clutches um, twice, I believe. And he fails both times, but he does learn a little bit more about her. On his second attempt, he sees that he is not going to be able to fit his wheelchair out the door that she has. So he wants to come back to the room and make it seem like he had never left because he's surely going to face punishment. His efforts turn out to be for nothing anyways because fortunately while he was out and about in the living room he forgot to turn a figurine she had on one of her tables back the way that he had found it. This for me was probably one of the most intense scenes of the movie because you see how much he's sweating and it cuts from what he's doing and him trying to get back to the room to Annie with her on her trip back from the store. And you know that she's getting close back home, and you know he's also getting closer to being back in the bedroom, but you don't know if he's gonna make it. So, whew, the anxiety. Now, although Paul had been healing in her care from his wreck, Annie wanted to make sure that he wasn't going anywhere, especially with his attempt to leave her. So her solution was a little, a little intense. And um, I'm referring to the scene that is probably the most iconic, well, not even probably, it is the most iconic from the movie. And yes, ah yes, the hobbling scene. I'll admit that for the most part, um, injuries don't really freak me out. I don't have to look away. It doesn't gross me out. If anything, most of the time I think it's really cool. And not that I don't think that the scene was cool. It just, whew, it really did make me wince. If you don't know what hobbling is, I have a definition for you right in my hand. So it says, hobbling a person is the act of crushing the bones in a person's ankles and feet so that they may not walk. It is mostly used as a form of torture. And this is exactly what Annie does. She takes Paul's feet and puts a board in between his ankles. And then she takes a motherfucking sledgehammer to him. The way his foot moves, you just have to see it. I cannot describe that, but ooh, child, sorry about your ankles. It's brutal. And if you can't imagine it, or you don't believe me, well, here's Mr. Paul Sheldon himself. Almost done. Just one more. As brutal as being hobbled is, Paul Sheldon does survive the movie. And that's really all I'll say. I've had a hard time not going literally scene by scene and describing in detail what's happening in the movie, but... 
I don't think this is what this podcast is going to be like. I want you guys to watch the movies that I love and then kind of tell me what you think. I'm hoping that the information that I give you, if anything, just entices you, makes you want to watch the movie. Maybe even with me. Hint, hint. Bottom line is, I'm new to this, so the whole format of the podcast is going to be ever-changing as I learn more and as I get feedback as well. Before I sign off, I do have a few extra fun facts concerning the movie. One being that Rob Reiner, again, who directed it, studied Alfred Hitchcock movies to figure out how to shoot a thriller. If you've ever seen any Hitchcock movies, they're filmed in a very specific way, and you can definitely see similarities between Misery and some of his films. One day on set, James Caan actually showed up hungover and nobody really said anything the day of, but later on Rob Reiner pretty much rendered the scenes that they shot that day unusable and they had to redo it. And when James Caan found out that he was the reason for it, he felt awful. Even offered to cover the money that he lost the studio from that day. (laughs) Something I didn't know and I find really funny, is that Misery was actually adapted for Broadway, and it debuted in 2015, starring freaking Bruce Willis. What? I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I just find that casting to be kind of odd. And honestly, he was criticized greatly for this role, apparently. Critics claiming his performance was deadly dull, and the New York Times even reported that the play overall wouldn't leave you cold with terror and that you're more likely to experience chills sitting in a tepid bath at home. Ouch. Although it sounds like he didn't do too great playing Paul Sheldon, uh, Lori Metcalf played the role of Annie Wilkes, and most people know her as Aunt Jackie from Roseanne, but she's from actually a lot of other things, and she's a great actress, and she got um, praised for her role as Annie. The last tidbit I want to leave you with is that um, the entire story of Misery is actually based off of Stephen King's drug use. Annie Wilkes was a metaphor for drugs. Stephen King had substance abuse issues during the time of writing the novel, and he told the Paris Review that Annie was my drug problem, and she was my number one fan. And God, she never wanted to leave. I wanted to play you guys Kathy Bates' acceptance speech for her Best Actress, our Best Leading Actress award. Um, but before I do that, I just wanted to remind you that the Instagram page is at horror underscore like underscore behavior, and you can send a Gmail to horrorlikebehavior at gmail.com. Please send me suggestions. Please keep sending those pictures of stickers in wherever you guys have been placing them, and I will, I'll talk to you next time. I would like to thank Jimmy Kahn and apologize publicly for the ankles. And I would like to say that I really am your number one fan, Jimmy.